I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. What a beautiful sentiment expressed in verses 15 and 16 of the 119th Psalm. Where there, the recognition of always attempting to recollect, remember, and recall the characteristics of God's word and to implant them into our heart so that day by day we might walk pleasingly and acceptably before the almighty eyes of the God of heaven. It is good that we're able to come together tonight. What a blessing it is on any occasion that we're given to come together in the name of God, to engage in a worship to His marvelous and matchless name. And as we've already noted tonight in both the introduction and the prayer, that's been granted to you and me even this evening. As you noted in the bulletin and also on the wall to my left, the lesson we'll consider tonight is drawn by way of its text from the 13th chapter of Jeremiah that was read in our hearing a few moments earlier. As we look into this interesting text, I believe we'll be able to extract some vital lessons that we should ever recollect and remember and use day by day to help us to be better servants and also more careful servants of God himself. As we begin by way of introduction, I would encourage you to consider some of the following thoughts with me. That isn't it true that the Old Testament, as you and I read from those 39 books, we do understand that that law is not the law under which you and I serve today. We are not commanded to, for instance, go to Jerusalem and there offer animal sacrifices. We are not commanded to have a physical high priest who on one day a year will enter a physical most holy place in a physical tabernacle situated on Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem. But we do nonetheless appreciate that contained within those 39 books are penetrating, timeless, and powerful lessons that are there for our purpose and benefit. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, as the inspired apostle recollected the thoughts and power of those Old Testament matters, he said that these things happened unto them for ensamples, upon whom, and also were written, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Notice he used the word example or ensample. We are expected by God to read, to learn from those Old Testament examples, not only of the good things that they did. We might well then learn about the faithful manner in which Enoch lived or the direction that Moses gave to his life. <clears throat> Excuse me. We might also, though, learn some of the mistakes and learn what to avoid, and learn how to not behave ourselves so that we too can remain in good standing with God. And it will be that latter exercise that will consume us as we look into the lesson tonight. Notice also that one of the pristine beauty spots of the Old Testament is to notice the beautiful object lessons that are so often found. What young child cannot remember the amazing character associated with Jonah and abiding within the interior of that great fish for three days? Or what person cannot remember and recollect the construction of the ark by Noah, for example? So too, in the life of Jeremiah, there were some interesting object lessons. I've listed just a few things for your consideration. Think about the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 8, where there God said, making reference to a hole in the wall, he used that hole as a means of helping Israel to directly see something and to draw a lesson from it. 
the lesson, by the way, was that Israel thought that they were undefeatable. The children of Israel thought that with God on their side that they could not possibly be beaten. But the problem was they weren't living faithfully to him. And thus God wasn't on their side. And God said, Jeremiah, I'm going to knock a hole in that wall so that everybody in Jerusalem can see it. And that's going to be a lesson that this wall not only will have a minor hole in it, but the armies that are your enemies will knock a bigger hole in it. Don't you know that would have been then a great lesson as folks would pass by and see the hole in that wall. They would remember the lesson that it was designed to teach. Or consider in Isaiah the 20th chapter, another object lesson. There it was the clothing worn by Isaiah. That clothing had an especial point to it. It was a point that was to illustrate again Israel was undone in the sight of God and she would be punished by the God of heaven because of her sin. In the book of Jeremiah alone, it seems as though almost every chapter has some type of object lesson. Consider just a sampling. In Jeremiah chapter 18, there it was the scene of a potter with a potter's wheel and clay on the wheel. We each understand that inasmuch as a potter can mold and shape that clay into whatever device or object he prefers, that was the very point. Clay is supposed to be supple and able to be maneuvered in the hands of the clay. But Jeremiah said, you wicked and stubborn people, God is the potter. You as the clay should be molded by him. But he said, the problem is the clay is marred. The clay won't hold together. And thus, that was a direct indictment of the children of Israel. You need to allow God to mold your life so that he can make of you what you need to become. But Israel did not learn that lesson, and they soon were punished for it. In Jeremiah 24, there's that memorable scene of the basket of summer figs. Problem is, the fruit in the summer was rotten. We each are well aware in the summer that if you leave fruit very often unattended, it will soon rot in the heat and moisture. Jeremiah's point was this, you as God's people should be fresh and ripened and pure for his cause, but you're rotten. You're not fit for anything. What grand lessons then that Jeremiah shared with the children of Israel, lessons that they should have learned from. And that brings us to chapter 13 tonight. The linen girdle scene found in this chapter, the first 11 verses that were read in our hearing just a moment earlier. Let us return and put that text in its context, and then as we close the lesson a bit later to extract some lessons from it that you and I can use on a daily basis. The prophet Jeremiah certainly must be one of the most noble souls amongst the prophets of the Old Testament. What a giant and grand figure he was. He began his prophetical labors in about 626 B.C. That was roughly 40 years prior to the destruction of Israel by the Nebuchadnezzar armies of, of Babylon. But during that period of time, he labored so purely, so grandly. He urged the people to repent he, in fact, time and again would live his life in such a fashion to exhort them to turn back to God and thus avoid that destruction. And all the while, his soul was burning with fire, if you will, in the sense that he loved the Lord and wanted the people to respond. 
No wonder in chapter 20, verse 9, he could say, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Jeremiah perceived that he couldn't keep quiet. He knew that the word of God within him burned like a raging fire, and he had to speak the word of truth. To that extent, we notice that the strong message that Jeremiah revealed was often couched with great directness. Jeremiah did not beat around the bush. He plainly preached the truth just as God had told him. In Jeremiah 1 verse 7, God had specifically said, Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. He was given no liberty to preach his opinions, his own suppositions, what I've given you, Jeremiah, God said, that's what you're to preach. That, by the way, is still the singular episode that should guide preachers of our day, isn't it? To speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. To preach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, verses 24 and 27. Paul, no wonder he could say in that very text, Nothing that was profitable unto you have I left unsaid. When you and I open the blessed pages of the Word of God, we too should preach recognizing that this is the standard for all time and eternity. Jeremiah was told, Jeremiah, preach what I've told you to preach. With those things noted, consider then some of the messages and warnings that Jeremiah preached to the children of Israel. In chapter 2, verse 13, he expressly made note to them on that occasion the seriousness of their condition the current state in which they were. He said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We well understand in this part of the world about cisterns and what's involved in them. Here, Jeremiah, again speaking for God, expressly said that this cistern that's to have good water, notable water, usable water, is broken. It contains brackish water, contaminated water, polluted water. And notice, he said the children of Israel are currently in this state. But he was just getting warmed up. Verse 32 of the same chapter, Can a maid forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. God said through Jeremiah. What a sad refrain. Here were the very people who ought to have remembered God, appreciated God, and loved Him, and yet God could honestly say, You have forgotten me. And isn't it beautiful to see the comparison that Jeremiah makes? Consider a lady on her wedding day. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? What lady on her wedding day wouldn't dress as prettily as she is able? to dress herself as beautifully as she can for the purposes of the one whom she's wedding. In fact, we each understand that great attention and effort and time is devoted to a wedding day to make sure it's right and that it's pretty and that it all goes smoothly as much as we can make that possible. Notice that God said, My people ought to have loved me and arrayed themselves appropriately for me, and yet they've forgotten me. Can't you almost hear the sadness in the very words of God in that description? We're beginning to see that Jeremiah's message was a stern one. Notice some of the other passages that I've asked you to notice. In chapter 5, verse 31, the very last verse of that chapter, 
we notice part of the problem for the people in Jeremiah's day, part of the difficulties with which they were dealing, the false prophets of that very day and time. Notice he says, The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. False doctrine was being preached. Things that were not in accordance to God's law was being taught, and yet God said, my people love to have it that way. Doesn't it sound like the smooth refrain spoken of in Isaiah 30 where the people wanted smooth words, they didn't want the truth. In many ways, the world has gone through that episode many times since, hasn't it? Wasn't it Paul who in 2 Timothy 4 said, beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, he said that that day of judgment is coming when the quick and the dead shall be judged. But then he quickly said to Timothy, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Sounds very similar to that with which Jeremiah was dealing, doesn't it? I've also asked you to consider chapter 6, verses 14 and 16. Especially note with me verse 16. Perhaps a passage that you and I have used as the text for many a sermon and many a lesson. Stand ye in the gates and see and ask for the old paths wherein is the good way and walk therein and ye shall find rest unto your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Those old paths are the paths that lead to everlasting glory. Those old paths, the ones couched in the truth of the Word of God, are the only true and living paths. And yet, isn't it startling, absolutely shocking to see the people say, we will not walk therein. They wanted something new. They wanted something not of those old paths. As we're going to see before the lesson's over tonight, they got what they wished for. They got for something new, but they didn't get anything pleasant. They didn't get anything kind and noble and approved of God. They got destruction, ruin. They got that which was, in fact, disastrously terrible. That's exactly what we'll get today if we do not seek for those old paths. Come that day of judgment, if it is not the old paths that we've sought, we will find ourselves sorely regretful of that order that we did take in life. I listed also chapter 7, verse 28, for your brief consideration. Listen again to what God said about this people. This is a nation that obeyeth not God. Now again, Jeremiah was simply speaking what God gave him to say. This is a nation, speaking to Judah, that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord our God. Every one of those texts that we've noted have been very demanding. They've been very direct. They have been very upfront. In each one of those times as we've looked at them, Notice the people are trusting in something other than God. In chapter 7, verse 3, we seem to gain a strong indication of what they were trusting in. On that occasion, God told Jeremiah, You go, and right in front of the temple you stand and preach. And he preached, and he preached, and he preached, and the first order of business in the lesson was this. You cry, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They thought that as long as that temple was standing, and as long as they proceeded to it at least every now and then, that God would providentially protect them and nothing disastrous could happen. 
Problem is, that was just an outward show. God no longer resided in their heart. He had already admitted, you've forgotten me. You have not sought the oil paths. You've rejected the plea for repentance. But they thought as long as that physical edifice was standing that they were fine. Today, we learn a valiant lesson from that as well, do we not? We can't place our trust in a building. Perhaps you and I on vacation have seen many a building that said Church of Christ. But what was going on inside wasn't the truth as revealed by the God of heaven. You see, we must have more than just an external name. Emanating from the heart, Jesus said, in fact, it is a matter of the heart, didn't he? We must pursue the Lord God and love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Mark 12, verse 30. And notice then as we turn back the clock to the day of Jeremiah and appreciate this stern warning, we're about to come to that text that we read a moment ago in Jeremiah chapter 13. Would you return then and let us learn yet again the lesson of Jeremiah's linen girdle. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, I've tried to summarize in various stages the instructions that God gave to Jeremiah. We notice that first of all, God told him to get a linen girdle. That word get in the Hebrew means to acquire, to buy, to purchase. So if he didn't have one, Jeremiah would have had to go and buy one or to purchase one, a linen girdle. Now that word girdle simply means a, a waist cloth, something not unlike what you and I would say would be akin to a, a rather large belt. Notice then that Jeremiah did exactly what God commanded. Verses 2 and 3 simply note, So I got a girdle according to the word of the Lord. Jeremiah did not question. He did not, in fact, argue or in any way question the things that God had commanded. He went and got one. However, we notice in verses 3 and 4 that Jeremiah apparently for a while was able to use and to wear this particular girdle, this particular waist cloth. As such, it became a useful thing to him. It came to the point where perhaps he considered it a part of his daily appointment for apparel. However, God came to him again in verse 4. God's instructions now may appear to you and me to be extremely unusual. For God simply said, Jeremiah, do you recall that girdle that you had gone and purchased by my commandment? You take that girdle, you proceed to the Euphrates River, you in fact produce or find a hole in a rock and you bury or you place that girdle within that hole beside, in the rock beside the river. A rather unusual commandment, wouldn't you think? However, let us notice in verse 5 that Jeremiah did exactly what God commanded. It says, So I went and hid it by Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. At this point, it may appear then that the girdle has been removed completely from Jeremiah. However, God in the very next passage, verse 6, God says to go back and retrieve it. And it came to pass after many days that the Lord said unto me, Arise, go to Euphrates, and take the girdle from thence which I commanded thee to hide there. Jeremiah proceeded then to go back and to locate where that girdle had been hidden, and he found it, and he retrieved it. But here's where we reach verses 7 and following. What did Jeremiah discover? What was it that he found? Let us then specifically again read, beginning in verse number 7. 
Then I went to Euphrates and digged and took the girdle from the place where I had hid it. And behold, the girdle was marred. It was profitable for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord, After this manner will I mar the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people which refuse to hear my words, which walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and to worship them shall even be as this girdle which is good for nothing. For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so have I caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they might be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear." Notice that when that girdle was retrieved, it had decayed. It had deteriorated. We each understand that that's not a shocking thing. The waters of the Euphrates, as they would have risen and fallen, water will, of course, wreak havoc upon leather, will it not? That which is a linen girdle. Surely it was deteriorated, marred, and even Jeremiah noted it has become tarnished and good for nothing. And God went on from there to say, you know what, Jeremiah? My people are good for nothing. Can you imagine God describing his people as being good for nothing? Isn't it an amazing description to hear the God of heaven say to his prophet, Jeremiah, that belt is like my people who are good for nothing. He even described him as evil in verse, in verse 10. As one recollects then about the nature of this message, and how it was that God described this. We notice then the final object lesson of it was simply this. Jeremiah, that belt that you went and hid, though it was yours and you owned it, once you hid it and retrieved it, you found that it was not profitable. You found that it was fit to do nothing but cast in the garbage. God to Jeremiah said, you know what? My people also are good for nothing. And in the same way that this girdle that you have is now to be cast aside, so too I'm going to cast my people aside. They too are fit for the garbage can. Perhaps it's time then to revisit. What about lessons from that that may be so challenging for you and me today? So many centuries later, we've seen what happened to this linen girdle. May I suggest a few lessons from the episode that might be of benefit to you and me today? Let us begin by noting the utter simplicity of God's message. It has ever been the case that God gave His will to the human family in language and in terms which were intended to be easily understood. God does not give His message to us in a way that we cannot understand it. He does not present His will to us in a way that is sophisticated, high, and non-comprehensible. In fact, would it not be a terrible thing to consider a God who would give His will to people, and all the while He gives it in a form and it cannot be understood, and yet He ultimately will judge them according to that very word? That would be unfair to say the least, wouldn't it? God's Word is understandable. It has ever been so. In the ancient ages of the Law of Moses, recall some of the texts in which lead us to know that God's Word to the Israelites was meant to be understood. In Deuteronomy 8, verse number 1, we can recollect and see that there Moses to the people said, When ye hear, ye may perform and do all the things that God has commanded. 
How could they have done it if they hadn't understood what he said? How could they have performed the things that God commanded if they had never understood what he had commanded? That is but one example of a host of others that could well be mentioned in the Old Testament. In Habakkuk 2, verse number 2, perhaps one of the most famous texts in that short book of minor prophecy, there to the people of that day, God through Habakkuk said, Write the vision, make it plain, so that those who read it may run. Thus, we notice that in the days of Habakkuk, what Habakkuk wrote was to be so straightforward and so direct and so plain that those who read it would immediately respond and run in response to it. It was to be that plain. The object lessons presented throughout the Bible often have that idea behind them. I've listed a few things for your consideration in the New Testament. In the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, we note that there are seven parables revealed, taught in that chapter. The first one listed perhaps is one of the most familiar ones to any of us. A sower went forth to sow. And if I simply stop there, we each know the parable that our Savior revealed on that occasion. This person who did something as innocent as sow seed, and yet Jesus used that very idea to teach a timeless lesson about the heart of mankind. That heart, you see, that's like the wayside soil is not as receptive to the gospel. And even though he or she may hear it, Satan snatches it away before it ever produces any fruit at all. And then he quickly mentioned a stony kind of soil. We've each sown grass seed or some other seeds in a rocky place. We know what happens. There isn't that depth of earth necessary to produce a healthy and vibrant plant. So too, Jesus said, that stony heart of man, that too will hear the word and that gospel may germinate and begin to grow for a little while. But then when the persecutions and afflictions and the difficult times arise, it withers away, for it doesn't have the earth to support it. So too, the heart of man. Then there's that thorny soil. Oh, the soil may have few, if any, rocks, but it's encumbered with thorns and briars and other things like thistles. Jesus said that's like that heart. That too is receptive to the truth initially. But it's encumbered with the cares and riches of the world, and they choke out the word. And again, it becomes unfruitful. Finally, he said, there's that good and fertile ground. It's like that heart that not only is able to bring forth, but it brings forth some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. What a beautiful lesson to note the simplicity of that. Who could possibly misunderstand it? What about the text of Mark 13? or rather Mark chapter 12, where there Jesus again taught a timeless parable. This one had to do with the wicked husbandman. As he reached near the end of that, he said, those wicked husbandmen, the ones who'd been given charge of the vineyard, one by one the owner had sent servants to reap the benefits and to thus make good on the promise. But with each servant they beat one, they slew others, they cast them out of the vineyard, they did not return that which was their benefit. Finally Jesus said, what do you think the master of that vineyard will do ultimately when even after sending his own son, they kill him? Of course, everyone's able to answer, well they're going to come and miserably treat those wicked servants and destroy them. 
Well, I wonder what then happened to the Jewish nation who took God's son and killed him. That was the whole point of the parable. You see, God's word's meant to be understood, isn't it? He meant for you and me to take it into heart and use it to live by day by day. The understandability of God's word is plainly taught in later parts of the New Testament. Didn't Jesus say that my yoke is easy and my burden is light in Matthew 11.30? Didn't Paul to Timothy write in 1 Timothy 4 beginning in verse 12, You continue in the word, Timothy. That would have been hard for Timothy to do if he didn't understand it. Timothy must have understood that word whereof he preached and those things in which he was involved. For in continuing therein, the text says, not only will you save yourself, but also those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4 verse 16. The understandability of the word of God then leads us to note that the word simplicity is used in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 as it relates to the word of God. We might well understand then there are certain passages or parts of the Holy Word that are a bit more difficult to comprehend than others. But the basic nature of the plan of salvation, God's love to the human family, and the character of what Christ did at Calvary, it's written on nearly every page from opening to cover. Those thoughts then remind us that this marred girdle, this deteriorated girdle that then Jeremiah could hold up and show to Israel they would have easily known what that meant. It wouldn't have taken much explanation for Jeremiah to explain that this leather girdle represents you. You have rejected the God of heaven, and just like this is good for nothing, so too are you. But what about a second lesson that easily could be learned as well? This one is also a rather dramatic lesson, not only for those of that day, but for us as well. God permits sin to run its awful course. At this point, isn't it interesting to ask, well, why didn't God step in and providentially stop the people from rejecting Him? Why didn't He throw a providential hand over them and force them to do His will so that they could be right in His sight? We notice that God has never done that in either testament, old or new. In fact, we could ask that same question about many people, couldn't we? What about David? It is specifically said in 1 Samuel 13 that he was a man after God's own heart. Then why in 2 Samuel 11, when he was walking on the roof of his palace, and he saw Bathsheba washing herself, why didn't God providentially intervene then in David's life and stop him from committing adultery and ultimately murder? Well, we can note that God allows sin to run its course. He allows you and me to be those who can make our own decisions. Free moral agency, as it's sometimes called. God doesn't make you and me as robots, does He? He pleads with us to do that which is right. He sets before us the eternal truth of His Word, but then He allows us the choice to follow it in love or to reject it. He does warn us about the consequences, though, if we reject it. But let us notice that in as much as God allows those with sin to run its course, that leads us to also notice some New Testament passages that relate to this very subject. In James 1 verse 13, let us recall, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man 
is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And thus James warns us to understand the fact that God does not tempt anybody. Rather, we understand that that temptation arises when those lusts in us are allowed to meet the fruition. They're allowed to be pursued to their disastrous and sinful end. No wonder then that those in Jeremiah's day as well as us must be always watchful and on guard, understanding that once sin is allowed to begin, God will allow it to run its awful and fateful course. Consider some texts as well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. To be sure, one of the most startling passages found in the book of 2 Thessalonians. I'd ask that you read with me verses 11 and 12. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12. What does this mean, that God shall send them strong delusion? That does not mean that God providentially causes some to be lost and others to be saved, despite their own free choices. That text written by Paul means, the truth is available. Those who choose to reject it, He will allow them to believe a lie. He will allow them to pursue and follow false doctrine, but it shall be, verse 12, to their damnation. What a serious discussion then for me and you to appreciate. This truth is given to us for our consideration. It is understandable. If we pervert it, or if we permit others to pervert it and then believe what they tell us, we will be held accountable. It will be to our damnation that that will occur. How thankful we must be for the truth. The pure, unadulterated, pristine truth of God that leads to everlasting life. Lesson again that we've noted, God will allow sin to run its awful course. But then notice with me a third lesson as well. Perhaps for the children of Israel, this one was the most serious of all. Here was a people who at one time had been saved. They were brought out of Egyptian captivity and God led them through 40 years into a land that He gave them. They didn't earn that land. They didn't work for it. God gave it to them. And He called them my people. Deuteronomy chapter 7. That very people though that once were His, by the time we get to the book of Jeremiah, they had forgotten Him. They were not faithful to him anymore. We might well notice then, did they become lost after they had been saved? The text says they did. You and I can well understand that the deliverance that they had known was no longer remembered. That salvation that they had formerly known was now forfeited. We might well wonder, what about a lesson in our day that touches that same subject? Many centuries ago, in the heart of the 15th century, there was a gentleman named John Calvin who, perhaps for all other doctrines for which he might be known, perhaps the one that was the clearest stated by him was the fact of the perseverance of the saints. Calvin taught over and over again that once a person is saved, he's always saved. 
Never again can he possibly be lost. In response to that doctrine, you and I must quickly ask, does the Bible teach that? Countless thousands over the last 400 years have believed that. They've put their trust in it. They have firmly believed that once saved, they were always saved. I would ask you as we close our lesson tonight to just briefly consider some New Testament texts and passages that teach just the opposite. By the way, we have already known tonight and seen that in Jeremiah's day that wasn't true. Here was the people of Israel who though once were saved, now were lost. They were that marred girdle that God said, I'm going to cast aside because it's good for nothing. In the New Testament, as well as even some other passages in the Old, I've listed these three for your discussion and your consideration with me. In Ezekiel chapter 3, let us read verses 17 through 21. Ezekiel 3, this was still in the Old Testament, but Ezekiel 3, verses 17 through 21. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, and note with me, verse 20, When a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely die. He shall surely live, because he is warned, also thou hast delivered thy soul. Perhaps of note in that is the part where God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, if you warn the righteous and he proceeds to sin, notice, I will not remember his righteousness. In other words, constant faithfulness was required. One could not rest on the fact that once he was saved, then he was guaranteed always, without any other effort on his part to be saved. In the New Testament, consider 2 Peter 2, verses 18 through 22. Perhaps of all the New Testament texts, this one is as forceful as any. Peter in writing says, beginning in verse 19, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his own vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Is it true that a person who once is saved can never do anything to become lost? Of course not. Mr. Calvin was completely wrong on that point. In fact, we will not have time to look at a host of other texts that might also be listed. For your consideration, I've also pointed out 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, 
to that list, you might add Revelation 3, verses 1 through 5, all of which discuss the fact a child of God, if he or she lives unfaithfully, will become lost. The point that Judah needed to learn in Jeremiah's day, constant vigilance, constant faithfulness, and that's the lesson you and I also need to learn even this very day. Let us close then our lesson tonight by at least remarking about these three lessons that we've learned. We have turned back the clock to study Jeremiah's linen girdle. We noted in the study of that that there were many things for our consideration, one of which was the fact of the understandability of the Word of God, how that God gave us His will, His divine will, and intended us to appreciate it, to follow it and obey it. Also, we noted that sin, God will allow to run its awful and disastrous course. That's why you and I must work diligently to always pursue truthfulness and to keep sin at bay. And thirdly, we've noticed that it is possible for a child of God to so conduct or live to become lost, to forfeit that salvation and deliverance from sin that was once known. This very evening, then, as we consider each of us ourselves, are you a faithful Christian? Have you been one who has obeyed the initial precepts of the gospel and lived faithfully in accordance to them day by day? If not, then you need to come back to that first love tonight. You need to let that linen girdle of Jeremiah's day be an object lesson for all of us today. We, too, can become good for nothing in God's sight if we turn aside from His will if we begin to stop doing it, if we no longer interact with the blessed Savior each day. Tonight, if we could assist anyone in your response to the gospel, we'd be happy to do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.